Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Representative Norrell for the Carolina Roll Call. We're so excited to have you on our podcast. You know, this week has been a very, very busy week for us, and we've covered a lot of state politics. And, you know, when you think about South Carolina politics and you think about um, one of the leading representatives in the state, you're the first person that comes to mind for me. So I am so excited that you're joining us today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. I have just messed up my um, my Zoom there. I, I don't know what you were seeing of me. Okay, now I'm back. <laughs> thank you for having me. I'm just so glad to be here. Yeah, well, thank you uh, for joining us. Uh, I'm Colin Bryant. I'm the co-host of the show. I also go to Walford with Chicory. Um, like I said, we're so excited to have uh, Representative Norrell, who represents uh, Lancaster-based District 44. Um, many of you, of our viewers, probably know uh, Mandy. Um, she ran for lieutenant governor, and she almost beat a very um, powerful person that we know today, uh, Mick Mulvaney. Um, so this is certainly <laughs> somewhere to watch. Um, the Post and Courier uh, and the state have called her a rising star in South Carolina politics. Um, so we certainly give her a lot of credit. Uh, but for our listeners who have never met Mandy, um, can you please give our listeners like a maybe a brief overview of who you are as a person? Introduce yourself. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity, Coleman and Jacory. Um, I'm Mandy Powers Norrell. I'm from Lancaster. I grew up here, and both my parents did, and my, all my grandparents. And for many generations back, we're just um, Lancastrians. And one thing about Lancaster is we used to have the world's largest cotton mill. So pretty much everybody I know worked for the mill. Both my parents did. And, um, and then when it came time for me to go to college, I was going to be the first in my family to go. But my mom became disabled, and so I got a job working at the mill, and that's how I paid for college. I worked at the Bleachery, which is where my dad had worked. And the Bleachery taught me a lot about uh, the value of hard work and how you treat people who depend on you. And, and the people I worked with have probably had the um, biggest influence, maybe not in my life, but in my trajectory of life. Because what they taught me is they would come by my area and they would say, Mandy, you have an opportunity to go to college and you have an opportunity to do a lot of things that, um, that we didn't. Uh, so recognize the opportunities that you have in life and always take advantage of the ones that, that fit you and don't ever let fear stand in your way. Don't ever tell yourself that's not for me because of my background or who I am or, or anything like that. Just take the opportunities and see where they lead you. And so I did. And I worked really hard in college and got a scholarship to law school and finished law school second in my class in just two and a half years. And then um, I came home to Lancaster to, um, to raise my family and practice law and, uh, and serve the people who helped raise me. And so that's where I've been with my husband. I brought him home to Lancaster and made him think it was his idea. And we raised our kids here and they've gone to the same public schools that I went to. And now they're both in college. And so they, it's, um, it's such a wonderful place to live, a wonderful place to grow up and raise a family. It's, um, you know, our rural areas in South Carolina are, we're losing population there. We're gaining population in the urban areas. And so I think it's, uh, it's important to, I think you're both from rural areas. So you know what I mean? It's, uh, it's important to have that, um, that mindset uh, represented in state government. And 
So that's, that's where I'm from. I practice law with my husband on main street. We have the largest law firm in town. We got two lawyers and it's, um, I do bankruptcy law and he does most everything else. And so we have, um, have been married for a little over 25 years and practicing law for about 24 of those. And so we, uh, we just, we love serving our community. So one thing you said there is um, about rural areas, me and Ja'Cory, we are both from rural mm-hmm. areas. Um, I'm from Sherrall and he's from Dillon. Um, yes. You're the first person we've interviewed from a rural area. And most of the people who are our early fans on this podcast are from the rural mm-hmm. areas of the 7th Congressional okay. District. Um, the rural areas are forgotten places in South Carolina almost by state politicians. So what is your mm-hmm. agenda specifically uh, for rural areas concerning broadband, roads, right. infrastructure, and maybe public education. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so I am so excited to talk about all of these. So um, one of the things, you know, I say in the state legislature, we're not so divided between Democrat and Republican as we are between urban and rural, because each, um, the people who represent those different types of of constituencies really don't understand how the other ones think as well as as they can cross that bridge uh, between political ideologies. You know, we've got kids who they go to school and the schools might give them a, a tablet or a MacBook to take home and do their homework, but they can't get their homework done if, if they don't have access to internet. And it's not, you know, for some of them, it's not that their parents are lazy or that they just don't provide them with Wi-Fi. It's that they don't have the ability to get it. And for uh, some of them don't even get a cell signal. So the uh, hotspot boxes don't work. And that to me, you know, my dad grew up without electricity or running water. He grew up way out in the country. And then the, um, and then the co-ops came and gave them electricity and eventually they got running water. And to, to me, that's analogous to what people in rural areas are dealing with now when they don't have broadband and they don't have the ability to stay connected. It's just like my dad growing up without electricity. It's uh, broadband to this generation is what electricity was to his. And so it's a, um, it's really an, an issue that we have to resolve. Otherwise, the achievement gap between the kids in rural areas and the kids in urban areas is just going to expand. And if you go to school without your homework, eventually you're going to start saying, well, I guess school is not for me. School is not my thing. I better figure out something to do with my life that doesn't involve academics. And that's a very sad thing when it's really a, a matter of access. And so we have to fix that. COVID has shown us since uh, going to online learning, uh, it has really highlighted the problem, I think, for a lot of lawmakers who kind of had their head in the sand about it. But, um, but another thing is, you know, how we fund our schools. The way we fund our schools nationally is upside down. When we fund schools through property taxes, it's the areas that have the the most valuable homes, the most valuable property, well, they get the higher taxes and their schools get the most money. And I have toured parts of this state when I ran for statewide office, you know, um, people would say, come see my school. 
And some of these schools look like college campuses. They're given private violin lessons and all these wonderful um, opportunities to students. And it's, it's wonderful and it makes me happy, but it also makes me so incredibly sad because I know that, you know, my kids didn't have that at the schools that they went to. And so many kids in rural areas don't have opportunities like that. And I mean, they're going to schools where the ceilings are still the old asbestos and, and it's, you know, things are falling in and they're in disrepair. And it's because we fund our schools upside down. The, the communities that need it the most get the least amount of funding because it's funded by property taxes. So that's, um, that's another area that I think we, we really, really have to work on. And, and I'm, I'm glad that folks are starting to pay attention to it. One of the silver linings of COVID is it's gotten folks to, um, to, um, to see some things that they didn't see before. And I think you asked me about a couple other things. I'll throw one in here. This is something. Yes. I'll throw one in here. And he asked you a lot of questions in one. Um, but uh -huh. I'll say this, you know, we talk about COVID, we talk about the school. And so what was your take when you saw that the governor had given and divided CARES Act money and given vouchers? Um, and a lot of that money will go to the um, private schools. Yes, $32 million to private schools. But what my take initially was, you know, a lot of people were really upset about it. And I was too. But y'all, he campaigned on that. He said that when he was when he was running for office that he no. wanted to divert public funds to private schools. You know, so we shouldn't have been surprised because that, that's the exact comment that I made on Facebook. You know that we do not look at um, campaign thing. We put R and D so much when we're doing election that we miss the whole idea of what they're saying. You know, and we were mad about something that we were we were promised, or many South Carolinians were. Right, right. I mean, that's, that's what I said, y'all. He campaigned on this. I even found um, newspaper articles where he was saying, this is what I will do if elected. I will make sure that, um, that parents have public funds to send their children to private academies that cater to the wealthy and, and will take those funds from what would otherwise go to, um, to public schools. So we should not have been surprised. It's right to be outraged, but I'd love to see some of that outrage on the front side of an election rather than on the back side of an election because, you know, elections have consequences and we need to really, really do our research before we vote. And we absolutely know that elections have consequences. I mean, one of the most important issues, both in the governor's race in 2018 and today, um, and the congressional races in 2018 was health care. Um, yes. And I know that one thing I'm pretty sure that you supported was expanding Medicaid. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. So what difference would that play today if we would have already expanded Medicaid in terms of the COVID crisis? Well, we would have 44,000 jobs in healthcare that we don't have right now. Um, one of the things with the COVID crisis is a lot of elective surgeries have been, um, have been, um, ended or delayed. And a lot of people in healthcare have lost their jobs. So we thought that when COVID started that the, you know, the demand there would be more jobs in healthcare and there are actually fewer. If we had accepted the Medicaid money though, we would have a, um, we'd have 44,000 new jobs that we don't have now that uh, would be created in the healthcare field. We would have rural hospitals because they're, 
hospitals were getting this, um, it's called disproportionate share money or dish money uh, to handle the offset of the money that they were losing to people who use the emergency room for their primary care physician because the emergency room can't turn them down. And if they don't have money to, um, to spend to go to a, uh, a private doctor, they would just go to the emergency room for, um, for minor sicknesses. So hospitals would get these federal funds called DISH funds or disproportionate share funds. Well, those were eliminated to fund the Affordable Care Act. And so a lot of hospitals that relied heavily on DISH funds uh, ended up having to close because the state, it didn't occur to the federal government that states would say, no, that's okay. You can keep your money. We don't want your you know, $33 billion in, in health care uh, funds that would, uh, that would cover hundreds of thousands of our citizens. I mean, that's like turning down your own income tax refund. And nobody does that because it doesn't make any sense. It was really dumb to do that. So, um, so the federal government didn't have a way to, to cover these dish funds that hospitals would lose if they didn't accept the money because it didn't occur to them that anybody would, that any state would, would turn that down. And it's, um, it's, there are so many things I and mean, people would be alive today who are not alive uh, because they would have health care if we had accepted those those funds way back when they were first available. We can still do it, but we've uh, we've lost a lot of ground. And and the thing is, we don't even know how much better things could be if we had accepted those federal health care funds because we haven't experienced it yet. If we get a taste of what it's like to actually cover everybody with health care, people are not going to want to go back to the way it to the way it was before. And I'll, you know, I'll shift gears a little bit. And one thing is I'm very interested to hear your take on this. And I follow I've been following your race um quite a little bit. Um well I'm not gonna lie, I've been following your race a lot. And one thing that I think on both sides is it's becoming so polarizing. When we think about what's happening across the country, we think about George Floyd, we think about Breonna Taylor, and we think about how sad um, the country's mourning those losses. And we see so much of both sides saying, you know, hey, we want to defund, and both sides say they're burning things up. And what we've learned about this podcast is that's just not true. You know, there's so much talk about if you're if you are a Democrat, then you hate cops. If you are a Republican, then you hate black folks. I mean, whatever the situation is, I would love to get your take on how do you bring Lancaster, your rural community together mm -hmm. uh, in a moment of just healing in this time right here? Thank you for asking that. And, you know, so much of what um, what we see is nationalized, you know, it's, it doesn't uh, scale to our communities in a lot of ways. You know, when um, after the, um, the, after George Floyd was killed, we had a, um, a vigil in, in, or peaceful protest or whatever, you know, you want to call it in Lancaster at our courthouse. And I was there and Senator Gregory was there. He's the Republican Senator who represents our area. And it was a beautiful thing. The police were there. When we had the, um, the Black Lives Matter parade, the front car was our police chief and the organizer of the parade riding together to show that you know, our police chief was the first in our community to speak out against 
what happened in the George Floyd uh, killing because he said that makes that makes him look bad. It makes his profession look bad. He wants people to know that that he would never condone something like that and that 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 is horrible. It's you know not only is it not okay, it is horrible and it's murder. And so it was good that he spoke out with such uh, you know healing words and that he uh, then you know participated in such a big way in the um in the peaceful protest so when and then it was clear you know they weren't protesting our police they were protesting what happened in in that situation and what has happened systemically uh over the course of of history and and we can't turn a blind eye to that we can't turn a blind eye to these patterns but at the same time we can't blame all of our law enforcement for a for the bad actors, especially when they are, you know, calling them out themselves. I mean, nobody wants bad people making their whole profession look bad. I hate it when, you know, there are bad lawyers and dirty lawyers doing uh, bad things. And, and I'm one of the first to, um, to call them out uh, when that happens, because it makes my profession look bad. And I was proud of, of our own police chief for doing that. But, um, but so I think that, that, the way that we do, we have to have like a focus on what's happening in our, in our own communities so that we don't become polarized, that we don't just automatically assume that every peaceful protest is a riot. Um, Cause I've had people reach out and say, Oh, they're calling these things peaceful protests, but they're really riots. And it's like, well, the peaceful protests are peaceful protests and the riots are riots. Those are two very different things. It's, they're not the same. And so, um, and people have asked me, well, how do you feel about Black Lives Matter? And I'm thinking that shouldn't even be a question. They matter? Yes, they matter. Of course they matter. I mean, what we need to have a conversation about is why we even need to talk about whether or not they matter, because that's the most basic thing in the world that they matter. And, and the, the um, retort of, well, all lives matter. Yes, of course, all lives matter. But it's like saying, um, you know, if your house is on fire and the fire department comes out to put out the fire and, and you know, the whole community is there, you know, supporting you and saying, you know, we're going to get this fire um, put out. And then your neighbor comes whose house is not on fire and your neighbor says, well, my house matters. And it's like, well, yeah, your house does matter, but we'll talk about that tomorrow. Right now, my house is on fire and, you know, we'll just work to put out the fire now. And I feel like that's, that's what we're doing. And that's, you know, what the analogy is here. Um, of, of course, the neighbor's house matters, but let's put out the fire in the house that's on fire and, and let's all work together to do that. And Cole, I know you've got a, uh... for you um, answer, I think this has been put out um, a lot in your race. I think I want to clear the air really quick just for your constituents that, um, you know, do you support law enforcement? I think it has been put out there. And I, I... And, and I think that's something that is happening in a lot of Democrats' races now. Yes, I support law enforcement. I've been representing law enforcement as an attorney for 22 years, I uh, my very first case was representing law enforcement when a um, a and and a crime watch group that was um that was fighting a uh, a liquor license in a high crime area for a uh, a business that wanted to open a uh, a bar there, and we thought that you know that would increase crime in the area, 
And so I've been, so from my very first client was law enforcement and I've been representing law enforcement consistently since then as an attorney. So yes, I very much support law enforcement and, and I'm proud to say that um, the law enforcement that, I, uh, that I've represented as an attorney, law enforcement officers that we have in Lancaster, they, uh, they very much support doing the right thing too. These are good people. And I, as an attorney um, representing law enforcement, have seen our, um, our police departments actually weed out the bad actors within their own departments. And so I don't wanna say that the George Floyd incident could not happen because we always get surprised when we say something couldn't happen, but I would be quite surprised uh, given the, the law enforcement officers in, in my own community, uh, if, if anything like that could ever happen in Lancaster because these are good, caring people who care about the lives and dignity of all people. And I, I couldn't be prouder of the law enforcement officers in Lancaster. So obviously you've got a, you've got a, good, a big race coming up um, and you've served in the seat for, since 2012, is that correct? Yes, yes, that's another belief. Um, so the, the question would be is, why should voters trust you with another two years um, in the General Assembly? And what specific issues, I know you've had a lot of issues you really care about. I know mm -hmm. you wrote, you've read a lot of bills because um, I follow you on Twitter and, and see yes. all these specific issues that you really care about. What issues are you going to focus on? Um, what can you tell our viewers uh, what you will focus on in the next two years? Okay, thank you for the opportunity to do that. So I, um, I think that, you know, there are a lot of practical reasons to give me another two years. I've served eight years and I've finally gotten to the place of seniority in, uh, in the legislature. When uh, we start back, Lancaster will have a freshman in the Senate and, uh, and I will be the most um, senior member of the House in our delegation and or who, you know, from Lancaster. And so that is a, um, it's a, I think it's a really important thing because seniority is how we get things done in the legislature. And I have uh, gotten through several bills to help our area. I've gotten a lot of money into, um, into our area for roads and parks and, and that kind of thing. But um, if, you know, if reelected, I plan to focus on a lot of the issues that I focused on before. We didn't get uh, several bills passed that were on track to be passed uh, when, when COVID hit and it shut us down uh, too soon. But the things that I focus on are generally um, helping our most vulnerable people who very often don't have a say in politics because they can't afford to hire lobbyists and um, like uh, children who have been sexually abused. That was my very first bill as a freshman was Aaron's Law and it has gotten predators out of countless children's lives since, uh, since it was enacted. And, you know, abused kids don't have lobbyists. Nobody was really paying attention to them. And, and I brought that bill, uh, drafted it and brought it to the floor. And, and people, you know, they'll support things after they understand them and they say, oh yeah, of course I'll support that. But they don't really bring it up because it's not a priority for them. Another is, um, you know, domestic violence. Um, you know, abused uh, spouses don't generally have um, lobbyists. And, um, and then elderly people who are being scammed in these horrible scams that we see on the internet, the Ghana romance scam and all these things where they're, they're targeted for their generosity, for their, um, 
for their kindnesses and and they're they're built out of their entire savings. Uh, I have a bill that would allow banks and credit unions to intervene and freeze an account to keep that from happening. And the attorney general saw that I had filed that bill and sent uh, some people to uh, to work with me on it to uh, to make sure that it gets passed when we come back in uh, after session. So you can bet that I'm just going to I'm going to be mainly focused on the people who don't have lobbyists to uh, to to uh, give them the, the leg up in the legislature and and making sure that that they have that they're protected and and taken care of by our government. You know, I, I follow a couple of your bills as well, because I think they're very interesting. But one thing that I was talking with with our dean of students, um, you know, mm -hmm. I was talking about you and I was talking about how excited we were. Um, and one of the coolest thing, did, did you go to Furman? I think you did. You? I did. Yes. That was the only thing that she disagreed with you on, you know, being a Walford. <laughs> but oh, yeah. One of the coolest things that we, we talked about in our discussion that I think since we are aiming towards college um, viewers is one cool um, bill, uh, one of your bills is when a student on campus, a female student on campus um, is drinking or whatever the situation is, and there's some type mm -hmm. of misconduct, their sexual assault or whatever, one of your bills says that the college is not going to punish that student. I think that is one of the coolest things. Um, Thank you. The amnesty bill that that actually happened with um, Bob Jones students this uh, this past school year where they were there were some Bob Jones students who were sexually assaulted and they were terrified to report it and actually um, I think left the ambulance that was carrying them to the hospital because they knew that they would be suspended when it was discovered that they were either off campus or drinking or there was some honor code violation. And, and, you know, that works for a lot of schools because schools will, um, their, their ranking is based in part on safety scores. And when students report sexual assaults, they go down in their safety scores. So if they're afraid to report a sexual assault, and I'm not saying colleges do this on purpose, but it does benefit them when students don't report sexual assaults. So um, that bill would require um, that colleges give amnesty to students who report a sexual assault, whether it is as a victim or as a witness. I have another bill that says that if you're sexually assaulted by somebody that you're in class with and the drop ad period has passed, you can still get out of that class and not have to continue in that class with someone who sexually assaulted you uh, even after the drop ad period has passed and you won't have to take a withdrawal and failing grade. And just to follow up with you, where are those bills at in the? They're in the in the Judiciary Committee, but we won't because of the signy die resolution. There, it can't get out. It will have to be reintroduced next year. Got you. Thank you so much for saying that. And we'll, thank you. We'll, thank we'll you. Years a little bit, and I um, I'll ask you this, or if Coleman won't, well, I'll ask you. Tell me a little bit about, and we're closing up, and we're getting on our last about. Um, five, 10 minutes, but tell me a little bit about campaign at the campaign trail. You know, I um, talk with you all the time about, you know, you running for governor, you running, um, <laughs> and I make even make jokes about going to work with you, but yes. uh, what is, what is something that you learned? And, you know, this is two questions. Was something you learned on the trail and tell um, the South Carolinians that are listening to this, what is next for you? So, I loved campaigning statewide and, and I love campaigning in my district. I just, I love going around and meeting people and, uh, and, 
know them in their own communities and and uh, and in their own homes. And it's it is it gives me so much life energy that you know after the campaign was over, you know, a campaign is like a train that just goes faster and faster and faster, and then it doesn't slow down before it stops. It just stops, and then it's like you know everybody's thrown off and. So the day after election day, all I wanted to do was get in the car and like drive to Walhalla and get out and start shaking people's hands and meeting them and, and all that instead of um, resting after the campaign. It's uh, it, it becomes, you know, that connection that you make with with everyday South Carolinians is just so addictive. And that is something that I I mean, I, I love having an excuse to do it and that being the, the campaign itself. Um, I, I don't know what's next for me. I mean, really what's next for me is, is hopefully winning this house seat in, um, in Southern Lancaster County. And because I want to, I love serving in the house and I want to, um, to have another two years in the house and, and work on redistricting and all those things that, uh, that will come up in the next two years. So that's a, um, that's a really important thing to me. A lot of people have asked about whether or not I'll run for statewide office again. And I do feel like we need some, um, some new representation. I think we need some, um, some fresh blood and some forward thinking uh, people. And I'm, I'm excited about the future of South Carolina. I think our electorate is changing. Young people are coming up and and having a voice and i am loving the voice that young people are having in our in our state and and so i'm excited about our future i don't know what role i play in that future but uh but i know that i know i'll be there in in some kind of, of capacity even if it's a supporting role i'm just um i'm thrilled about the direction that that i think we're headed in well, we are uh, wrapping up right here, and we obviously think you're an impressive candidate. We know you have broad appeal, um, especially winning a seat that is traditionally Republican um, in Lancaster County. Um, that's obvious you have bipartisan support. Uh, but we always like to ask a fun question. Um, yeah. We like to kind of tone it down and, and get rid of politics. Okay. Uh, last time we talked about hole-in-the-wall restaurants. Today, I think we're going to shift to different gear. Uh, what do you think is one of the most overlooked um, destinations in our state? Maybe it's an attraction, something that you enjoy doing with your family that um, many South Carolinians uh, have never been to or never uh, went to. We're, we'll kind of go around. Everyone can say theirs. I, I love kayaking the Catawba River. And when I get out on that river, I am very often the only person out there. And so that is just, it thrills me to no end. There are all these islands out there that, that are just, I guess they're owned by Duke Power, but nobody really owns them. They're untouched. And it's just, um, I love exploring the big boulders out here. And it's, uh, it's like a whole other world that I, really before COVID, I didn't fully appreciate. And since COVID, that's been, that's been one of my favorite pastimes is kayaking on the Catawba. So obviously I'm very biased and, you know, I'm a big Dylan guy. So the most overlooked attraction in South Carolina, even though all the billboards are south of the border. So, you know, it's one of the best places to sit and um, eat and, you know, it, it, it one of the hallmarks of South Carolina and Dillon County. So that, that is my take for, you know, the most overlooked place. 
Yeah, and my mine is actually going to go back to uh, somewhere I go uh, every now and then in this summer. It's going to be Brook Green Gardens. If anyone's got a chance to go to Brook Green Gardens, it's uh, near in between Polly's Island and Merle's Inlet, and it is absolutely beautiful gardens and sculptures um, and just beautiful wildlife and landscape. So if anyone ever gets a chance to go, um, you also should check out the uh, Night of a Thousand Candles, which is um, in the uh, Christmas time. Uh, the lights are great. Um, so we just kind of want to wrap this up. I know Corey can close this out, but we've really enjoyed having you on here. We enjoy your perspective uh, and we look forward to watching your race. Uh, best of luck. Thank you so much. Thank y'all for having me. I'm so excited that you're here. And I think you touched on so much stuff that, you know, when you think about a podcast and you think about somebody riding in the car, you know, they think about being encouraged. They think about, you know, moving throughout their day and something to brighten their day. And I think you've done that here in our state, you know, especially for so many younger viewers and um, especially young girls that are listening to this and thinking, you know, should I get involved in politics? Should I even vote? And I think you've done that today. You've gave, given them hope. You've given our state hope. You know, that the future of our state is bright. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank y'all for having me. This has been great.